Well, here we are in late August, uh, in week eight of a nine-week summer sermon series entitled Disruption. And we've been examining how the story of Jesus intersects and disrupts and transforms our stories. And today we're going to look into how the truth of Jesus disrupts deception. And I was pondering the notion of deception, and as I was doing so, it occurred to me that we all live in the midst of multiple and various deceptions, right? Some that we've devised and cultivated ourselves, and some deceptions that have been imposed upon us. Some deceptions are petty and harmless, and others are quite dangerous. I was reading an article in the Atlantic Monthly Journal this past week on various strategies that people use to look smart. Now, these weren't strategies on how to become smart. They were strategies on how to appear smart. In other words, these were strategies of deception. And they reported some interesting findings from a number of different studies on people's perceptions of intelligence. And one of the studies involved a survey on what you would do in a particular situation. And it went like this. Imagine you're at a party and you find yourself caught in the middle of a conversation about a great book like War and Peace, but you haven't read it. What would you do? Would you A, listen quietly, nodding appropriately at various times? Hmm, yeah, add, add hmm, oh yeah, hmm. Or B, would you slowly back out on that conversation cluster? Kind of like meeting a bear in the woods, slowly back out on that group and look for another conversation group to join. Oh, they're talking about the Seahawks. I'll, I, can join, I can join them. Or C, would you say something about the book anyway? You know, weigh in with some innocuous comment in the attempt to seem smart. What would you do? I'm tempted to take a survey right here, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna leave you. I'm going to leave you alone. A, would you listen quietly? B, would you bear in the woods, move back, seek another conversation group? Or C, would you weigh in? Well, it turns out that in a poll of 2,000 Brits, 62% replied that in that situation, they would deploy tactic C. It turns out that lying about having read classic books is the most popular strategy for appearing intelligent. Another leading strategy I found very interesting involves the use of the middle initial. It turns out that people who regularly use their middle initial, like to introduce themselves or to sign important documents, they appear smarter. Well, that just seems to ring true for me. I, I mean, I've always thought that my friend and fellow UPC pastor, James B. Notkin, <laughs> I always thought that he was uber smart. A deception, perhaps? No, he's really smart. He really is. Well, my favorite finding, and the one that I can really resonate with, is that a large percentage of people believe that wearing eyeglasses make a person appear more intelligent. 
And I don't know about you, but it seems like every celebrity I ever see now on television or otherwise is wearing glasses. I don't know if they're trying to front being smart or not, but, you know, I thought I'd give it a try. I thought I'd give it the, uh, I thought I'd go with the Governor Rick Perry look. I thought I'd go with that. What do you think? Uh, from your expressions, it's not, it's obviously not working. I guess I, there's no hope for me to appear intelligent, obviously. Well, that's enough petty deceptions uh, for this morning, but today uh, we're considering a passage that introduces a far more serious deception. In fact, in this passage that we're working with today, we are encountering two deceptions. Deception number one has to do with the story of Jesus' trial. We heard it earlier. And that story is essentially about a predetermined verdict that is seeking to gain credibility by disguising itself within a highly choreographed court proceeding. And then there's deception number two, which involves the self-constructed identity of Peter that dramatically falls apart at his third and final denial of Jesus. Two disruptions. And both of these disruptions are disrupted with the truth. And the truth has to do with identity. It's truth about identity. Jesus' true identity and Peter's true identity. Well, let's look at the disruption of deception number one. Turn with me in your Bibles, uh, if you will, to the passage we're studying this morning, either in your own Bible at chap uh, chapter 14 of the Gospel of Mark, or if you're using the Black Pew Bible there in front of you, uh, Mark chapter 14, the verse starts on, in 53, and you can find it on page 828. Now, we already read the story. We had it read for us uh, earlier in the service. Not, we're not going to read it again, but we are going to walk through this passage, and you might want to have this passage open as we move through pieces of the story. And so as we open God's word, let's just pause for a moment and pray. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, be our teacher in this time. Lead us into this passage. Show us what you have for us in it. And then lead us forth from this passage as your people and into your mission. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, immediately we see that the story opens in the home of Caiaphas, the high priest. Jesus arrives here in the grip of an armed mob having been set up by one of his close friends, and he's brought here to be tried before the Sanhedrin, a group of 71 men who are the top Jewish leaders in their community. It's a shadowy, secretive encounter convened in the middle of the night at a private residence away from the attention and accountability of a public hearing. This is not an open trial. It's a manufactured lynching. The game is rigged, and everyone there knows it. It's a massive deception. And yet, even so, they have a really hard time pulling it off. You see, according to Jewish law, a verdict in a trial required the corroboration of at least two witnesses. And in order to feign legitimacy, they lined up witnesses to give testimony against Jesus, but they couldn't get the witnesses to align their stories. Instead of corroboration, there was confusion and chaos. 
And you know, that's not surprising. You know, it's difficult enough to get two stories aligned when you're talking the truth, but when you're manufacturing lies, it's nearly impossible. And these contrived witnesses fail miserably. The high priest becomes agitated, frustrated, and he addresses Jesus directly, and initially Jesus ignores him. But then the high priest asks Jesus a point-blank question. In fact, it's the point-blank question. He asks, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? In other words, do you yourself claim to be the Messiah, the anointed one of God, the Jewish political leader who will restore the national aspirations of the Jews? That's essentially the question that he's asking. And I'm not sure that anyone could have anticipated Jesus' response. It must have landed like a bolt of lightning, the atmosphere literally electrified with his utterance, I am. Those two words alone would have likely been enough to bring down the Sanhedrin's condemnation. But Jesus continues with what would seem to our ears a strange declaration. He adds, And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One, coming on the clouds of heaven. At that statement, all hell breaks loose. Chaos ensues. Priestly vestments are torn. A chorus of denunciation is unleashed. A death sentence is proclaimed. And the story ends with Jesus mocked, bound, and beaten. Why such a dramatic response? In this brief statement, Jesus calls into question all that they believe and understand about the Messiah. There may be not another statement in all of human history that is so full with import, that is so full of meaning. In this one statement, in this profound disclosure of identity, Jesus radically messes with their Messiah concept. The popular Jewish conception of Messiah is that God, that he was a God-anointed man who would become the leader or king of the Jews with the mission of reestablishing the kingdom of Israel as a political or national entity. Jesus asserts that he himself is, in fact, the Messiah, but not as they understand it. He claims to be God himself, and that was far more than they bargained for. In response to the high priest's question, Jesus appropriates and merges theological themes from two Old Testament texts, from Daniel chapter 7 and from Psalm 110. And I wish, I really wish that we had time to delve into and exegete those texts. What he does, what Jesus does with these texts here is truly astounding. But this theological merger represents a redefinition of who the Messiah is and the scope of his mission right here at the literal moment of truth in front of the leaders of the Jewish community, theologians, scholars, scribes, he hijacks the Jewish notion of Messiah. When asked point blank, who are you? He delivers the stunning, incomprehensible truth 
the ultimately disruptive truth that Israel's God was acting through him and in him and as him. The convergence of human and divine identity in the person of Jesus is disclosed and it penetrates and disrupts not only the deception of the mockery of that trial, but it confronts and disrupts all deceptions that make Jesus less than the one who is himself, God the Son. Truth disrupts deception in a cosmic way. And the truth is that Jesus is the Messiah, but not in the limited vision of Jewish popular notions of Messianess as a leader of a local revolt against the political powers that be, but rather as the one who in his divine nature claims the dominion and the authority to defeat evil. To do nothing less than to defeat evil and to establish the kingdom of God as the rule over the whole created order. This is the disruptive truth that the Apostle Paul represents in that great Christological hymn of Colossians in the first chapter, verses 15 through 20. I really encourage you after the service to go away and read that, meditate upon that. Paul is saying that is the nature of Christ, the Messiah. The Jewish Messiah concept is reframed and redefined by Jesus who expands it and embodies it in ways that no one could have anticipated. Jesus' truth about his identity disrupts deception. Which leads us to the second deception in the story, and that's deception number two, which involves Peter. And just as deception number one revolved around Jesus' identity, deception number two involves Peter's identity. And as we read the Gospels, we get the sense that Peter is this bigger-than-life character. We love Peter. Peter was one of Jesus' closest friends. He was a member of his inner circle, and Jesus repeatedly invited Peter into some of the most extraordinary encounters imaginable. You can't help but get the sense that Peter is somehow special. Even his name confers a certain specialness. I mean, Peter is the unique name that Jesus himself gives him. And it means rock. And in giving Peter this name, Jesus establishes an interesting direct relationship between Peter's identity and Jesus' mission in the world. I don't know if you caught this, but at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the parable of the wise, in the parable of the wise and foolish builder, Jesus refers to himself as Petra. In other words, the big rock on which the wise builder will construct his life. And Jesus is the big rock, and Peter is the little rock, the one on whom Jesus says he will build his church. So Jesus is sharing his covenant identity with Peter as a partner with God. I'm the big rock on which the whole world will construct their life. You're the little rock in which I will build my community of followers, the church. Jesus is sharing this covenant identity with Peter and inviting them together as partners in God's mission in the world. 
Well, that's an incredible invitation, and Peter takes that to heart. But somehow along the way, Peter's identity gets disconnected from Jesus and his mission. His sense of uniqueness in relationship to Jesus gets distorted. He begins to construct an, to construct an image of himself as the super apostle, characterized by extraordinary courage and loyalty and zeal, and invulnerable to the fears and weaknesses of his mere mortal fellow disciples. We saw this distortion last week in the passage that Courtney reflected on with us. And in that passage, Jesus warns his disciples that there's a storm coming. And when that crisis hits, all of his disciples will abandon him. All of his disciples will abandon him. In response, Jesus is confronted with a defiant, vehemently emphatic Peter who claims that he is unlike all the others. Peter asserts his incomparable courage and loyalty and vehemently claims that he will follow Jesus even to the death. All the others may abandon you, Jesus, but I'm not like them. I'm special. I'm Peter. And this story is the sequel to that story. And in this story we heard earlier, Peter's emphatic assertion of courage and loyalty comes apart in pieces. He denies Jesus three times in that courtyard. And you know, he must have felt so courageous following that mob into the high priest's mansion. I mean, he placed himself right there in the danger zone. But on three successive occasions, he was confronted about his association with the prisoner, and under the intense stress of those three accusations, his courage dissolved. His loyalty evaporated. In dramatic fashion, Peter's self-constructed identity is exposed. His identity as the courageous, uber-loyal, super-apostle is disrupted by the truth of his successive denials, and he is shattered. Shame and humiliation overwhelms him. Truth disrupts deception. And you know, that's the last that we see of Peter in the Gospel of Mark. A shattered, broken-down, shame-infused, weeping clump of humanity. That tragic image of a humiliated Peter makes you wonder what happened to him afterwards, immediately after this incident. What effect did the experience of such profound shame and humiliation have on Peter in the few days that, were, that followed this personal catastrophe. In that time between his denials and the time in which he heard the news of the empty tomb, what happened to Peter? Well, we have only our imaginations to conceive of it. But I would guess that he withdrew, that he isolated himself. I mean, how could he have possibly rejoined his friends in the Jesus community after such an enormous breakdown. It must have been a really dark time for him. And I can only imagine that he was deeply confused, perplexed, entirely lost, adrift. He probably withdrew into a very solitary place and wrestled with his personal demons, wrestling with the debilitating accusations that follow a humiliating loss or failure. 
In light of this betrayal and humiliation, you can imagine him asking a couple essential questions. Who am I? And what am I here for? His life was totally up for grabs. Now, though Peter doesn't show up again in Mark's gospel, we know that that's not the end of the story. That humiliation is not the end of Peter's story. In fact, there's one more mention of Peter in this gospel, and it's a very enlightening mention. In chapter 16, we have the story of the women who go to the tomb, and they are met there by an angel. And in the course of their encounter, the angel explains that Jesus is gone. There's an empty tomb. He is risen. And he gives these women very specific instructions. He says, go, tell his disciples and Peter. The angel says, go, tell his disciples and Peter. I found that statement fascinating basically says, get word to Peter. Don't let Peter get away. Make sure to find Peter in the agony of his personal exile and make sure that he gets word of the unimaginable mystery of the empty tomb. That news will change everything. And then in John's gospel, in chapter 21, we are provided the familiar story of Peter's full restoration into the community of Jesus. Peter's identity had been shattered. He lived in the definition of himself as a failure. And in this encounter, Jesus restores him not to a flawed identity, but to his truer identity. Three times, Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? And three times, Jesus responds to Peter's affirmative response with, Feed my sheep. Isn't it interesting that Peter's restoration to his truer identity has everything to do with his love relationship with Jesus and Jesus' invitation to join with him in mission? Feed my sheep. Or in other words, build my church. He's restored to his original, Jesus-defined, truer, deeper identity. Peter's identity is restored when it is once again rooted in a life that is centered in a personal relationship with Jesus and engaged in God's healing mission in the world. You know, this story confronts us with some extraordinary good news. If we're honest with ourselves, we are all victims of deceptive identities. Either those we've cultivated ourselves or those that we have somehow been imposed upon us. They may be deceptively positive identities, and we walk around in the constant fear of being discovered as a fraud, of being found out, of being revealed for who we truly are. Or perhaps they're deeply damaging identities, identities that we've internalized, we've received and eternalized from experiences of failure or by others' perceptions that continually pronounce us flawed, inadequate, irredeemable. And in the embrace of that identity, we live in the constant shame and humiliation of never being enough. But here's the thing. 
Jesus' truth disrupts deception. Jesus invites us into a truer identity. His truth always disrupts our deceptions. His truth about himself and his truth about us. As we consider that truth and seek to work it into our own lives, as we yield our ways to his way, transformation is possible. And the various deceptions that have taken root in our lives are exposed to the light of his deeper truth. And we are liberated. All of life takes on new meaning in response to the disruptive truth that Jesus is the Messiah, Lord of all life. He invites us to follow him and to enter into his life and mission. And that's how we discover who he truly is. And that's how we discover who we truly are. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for the invitation into your deeper truth, to that truth that disrupts the lies that orbit around us, that take root in our lives. God, thank you for the liberation of that truth, for the disruption of it. And help us to follow you into the bigger truth, the deeper truth that you love us and you invite us into your healing mission in the world. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.